Okay, um, it's a great pleasure to introduce Commodore Retard, <laughs> Professor newly created, <laughs> Steve Jeremy, um, who was, has been a Hudson Fellow here at Oxford, has been associated with Changing Character War Programme as a visiting fellow, um, and uh, crucially, uh, in that time, um, while he was doing those things, was working on this strategy for action, uh, now available, a snip at 9.99, uh, <laughs> and uh, to be read by all. Uh, and of course, it's around that that he will be speaking. Um, his career in the Royal Navy, as well as including um, a, a number of, of course, uh, appointments at sea, included responsibilities in the Directorate of Policy Planning. Um, he was Principal Staff Officer and Chief Defence Staff. Um, he uh, deployed, as well as a number of operational deployments before Afghanistan, he went as the strategy director to the British Embassy in Kabul, about which he has spoken most interestingly, I have to say, to this group uh, before, in terms of, of the counterinsurgency strategy in Afghanistan. Um, and uh, he has also uh, been involved on the staff of the Royal College of Defence Studies. Uh, and the professorship is at the University of Plymouth. Mm. Great. Great. And your title today, Steve, yeah. is Strategy for Action. Yes, that's the title. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Hugh, thank you. Um, I'm going to talk about the subjects of strategy today, but actually if I'm really talking about something, it's not strategy, but strategy making, and I think it's an important distinction. Um, I'm on a sort of journey, and it sort of started with the Falklands War, I suppose, and being deployed into the Falklands War. Um, went through operational uh, roles, uh, various operational deployments, um, then we sort of arrived in about 2005, and I can remember sitting in St. Anthony's um, with you and talking about strategy and what I foresaw or what I felt was intuitively uh, a lack of a capacity to make strategy properly uh, in this country. Um, I went on after that job um, or after those discussions. We kept talking, but I went on then to act as the Chief Defence Staff's uh, Principal Staff Officer and deployed to Iraq and to Afghanistan but really was right at the sort of centre and some of the key decisions, and I'll talk about these today. Um, Afghanistan was fun. I was the only naval officer, senior naval officer ever to, employ, to deploy out there, and that had its moments. Um, I think Cheryl Cooper-Coles may have talked to you recently. Um, he's a chum. We didn't agree on everything, but actually because the Afghans got extremely uh, confused by the idea of having a Commodore, out in Afghanistan, he um, started to call me Brigadier General, uh, which was great fun. Um, there did come a moment, though, when I was in Herat, deploying to Herat to have a look at the overall campaign in Herat, and sat down with the Corps Commander, 207 Corps, um, Iraq, um, sorry, Afghanistan, 207 Corps Afghan Army, and um, what I thought would be what I was a courtesy call, uh, it, it immediately became clear to me that it was going to be something else because he got his maps out and it was clear that we were going to start to talk about dispositions. Now, of course, I'm a naval aviator and I'm conscious there are army officers and probably ex-army officers in the um, audience, so I was suddenly faced with that decision. Should I say something to him uh, and explain that I'm actually a naval aviator, my job uh, was to fly from carriers and to drive ships, or should I actually um, just get on with it? But I thought to myself, and I'm looking at Rob here, thought to myself, how hard can this army stuff be? So, <laughs> We sat down with his dispositions and for about half an hour or so reorganised, uh, thought things through, and I'm pleased to say that um, the Taliban have still not invested Herat. And um, what I'm going to talk to today is about strategy, and on a much more serious point, I came back from Afghanistan angry. 
and I was angry because it was extremely difficult to really get Whitehall to think strategically. Um, I remember coming into a briefing amongst other places in number 10, and not to the Prime Minister but to his special advisers, and actually saying there is no strategy out there. And this was in late, 2000, late 2007, early 2008. The answer I got was, well, actually, there is strategy there. It, this is it. And what they were talking about was a British strategy uh, for a, uh, a Helmand province, which essentially amounts to one thirty-fourth of the country. And it was very difficult to explain to people that actually Helmand would, would matter, but not really that much. And uh, uh, even when one sort of used metaphors, like it was a bit like thinking about an election. Rob and I have just had this conversation at lunch about like, like thinking about an election in this country and working out whether or not success or failure uh, can be judged from what happens in Somerset. Um, there are much more, in places, much more important places in Afghanistan. But I came out of angry because it was very, very difficult to actually make a change. So uh, uh, that's what my um, thing is going to be about today. I want to actually to, to start off with a proposition. Uh, and the proposition is about thinking, about strategic thinking and about our capacity so to do. Um, I'm going to test it, and I'll test it using some simple frameworks that I have in my book. Um, I'll use those frameworks to look at those case studies. I'll talk about Iraq, and these are decisions which I was pretty much engaged in, apart from Libya. Talk about Afghanistan at the campaign level. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about Libya. Then I'll talk to the big grand strategic decisions, and one of the big decisions for me was why did we go from Iraq to Afghanistan when we did uh, in 2005, uh, and was Libya the right thing in 2011 when we were already heavily committed in uh, Afghanistan? Um, so, and then I'll finish off with some, some, some deductions about so what. So, what's the proposition? That's my proposition. I'll let you read it. Um, I'm not alone uh, in this. Uh, there are a sort of bunch of strategy insurgents, I suppose you could call us, actually trying to make change in Whitehall. It's hard work, but uh, we're making progress. Where does it come from? Um, this is a important, and I think it's a fabulous quote from General André Beaufray. For those who don't know of his work, I thoroughly recommend his An Introduction to Strategy, written in 1956. It's probably still one of the best pieces in terms of strategy making. André Beaufray was a French general uh, and engaged in a whole load of things. Interestingly, he is the only four-star officer who has written, as far as I can see, in the last 250 years on strategy, which is a rather curious, com curious um, observation, I think, actually. Um, it's more modern, though. Have a look at that um, quote. That is from uh, Bernard Jenkins. Bernard Jenkins um, uh, runs the Public Administration Select Committee. And again, for those of you who haven't, I thoroughly recommend this document. Um, it's House Commons Defence Select Committee. Who does national strategy? Because Bernard is one of the people who recognises that this is a shortfall. And I'm bound to say that uh, having been part of this and within the organisation, actually now looking at it as, a, uh, as, a, as an author and a, and a thinker, um, I think there's really something in this. Um, we're starting at last. I said the most important thing when I was interviewed by the committee is that the key thing is we last had the insight that we're not very good at this in some areas. I'd like to say we had the insight within Westminster and Whitehall, but we don't yet. Um, we'll get there. So that's my proposition. Um, to test the proposition, I'm going to use t 
two very simple things that I've used for my book, actually. Um, what does good strategy look like? And um, for those of you who are strategic thinkers, the term good strategy is a poor term, because strategy, generally speaking, is about a dialectic. It's about a confrontation. So that's why superior is the much better um, term, because good strategy can only be gauged in, in terms of a confrontation, if it's confrontational or, or in a circumstance. I'll also use um, a term called the strategic estimate. Um, I'll talk a little bit about this, but for those of you who are of military background, you'll recognize the term estimate, which is, is used. Um, it's a set of structured questions called the commander's estimate, where we think through problems, and it is no more or less than that. And I'll use that just to say how we might frame strategic thinking. What does superior strategy look like? Um, in my book, and I've sort of come at it both deductively uh, and also from historical, um, a historical sense, usually strategy has a big idea in it uh, or a collection of smaller ideas. Let me give you an example of that. Um, an example is the Second World War. What is the very first big idea in the Second World War uh, when the, um, the Americans enter it? To me, it's dead simple. It's Germany first. And having made that significant decision next, you then find that most of the strategic judgments from there flow from there. Um, usually, the strategy is uh, easy to, to explain. Um, there's a sense of initiative, and this comes from General Slim's work, actually. Slim's work is always, always, he's always about having the initiative. It's doable, operational, terrible term, but it's difficult to find another one. Uh, but there's also flexibility. And the last but most important, I think, is the ability to bind the key players. And um, sometimes there are theoretical discussions about actually having suboptimal strategy because actually it binds the coalition players. Well, actually, if you ask me, would I prefer to have a theoretical strategy that's perfect but nobody agrees to, or a suboptimal strategy that's adequate uh, and all the coalitions agree to, it's the latter every time because the former actually simply won't work. So that's really the test. Um, but again, as I've said, the test can only be against situations, and I have three very simple tests for effective strategy, for successful strategy. Was it effective? So did it deliver the political objective? Was it efficient? Did it deliver the political objective within the resources that we had originally envisaged? And in durability, did the results endure? And on those um, tests, I would say that looking back historically, I'm conscious that I've got um, a great thing, a, a Chichetti professor of war studies here sat in front of me, so I'm cautious about historical judgments. I'm not a historian, but I would say that um, Frederick the Great and Moltke were great strategists, and I would say Napoleon was a pretty awful one based on those tests. Um, but now really more to the substance of what it is um, that I want to use to test um, some of my case studies. Um, the term, the, the military estimate, is a term which is really about sets of structured questions. And the military, uh, those of you with a military background, the audience will recognize it. Uh, we actually call it the commander's estimate. And it's the estimate is about questions, and I'll run through those questions. Um, when I was working for Jockster, the chief of defense staff in 2005, and we were struggling to find out what was going wrong, um, I came back to him. He asked me to have a look at this. I came back to him uh, and said two things. I said, first, that strategy is being made in the Ministry of Defense by a major uh, in a relatively low-level low area of the organization, and we don't really take much, much look at it. And the second thing is I said that we have no estimate. So whereas if you had asked me to take over a, um, if you'd asked me as an operational commander to do something, I'd have run through these questions. Uh, if you'd asked me as a strategic commander, will we do it? We just didn't, make, didn't do those questions. What are the questions that I've got in the book? Um, seven. What is the political and strategic context? We so often get this one wrong. Um, and I've got examples of that. I'll talk about that. 
So what's I, to me, this is almost like what's the political map within which we're operating, actually. And I think that actually as I look back, and I include myself as having, we all made mistakes, but as I look back, we simply didn't give enough thinking to this question time and time again. Well, why are we fighting? Um, what is the political issue at contest? And again, this question isn't really, really very well thought through. Um, what, for example, is the political issue at contest in the global war on terrorism? Um, I leave that as a rhetorical question. This one also gets missed. What's the objective and why? Actually, it's very interesting. If you look at the Vietnam War, one of the good studies in the Vietnam War says that 70% of the generals in the Vietnam War did not know, did not know what the objective was. And if you ask me about Afghanistan and Iraq, I think there's still a fair bit of uh, lack of clarity on both of those, particularly Afghanistan. So those are the things that you need to do. To me, they're the foundations. Um, then I start to talk about what resources are available to actually achieve this objective. It's very easy to see the resources in terms of two things. We tend to think in terms of blood and treasure. Those are sort of tangible resources of people, um, uh, money. Uh, but we often forget there are other resources as well. To me, time is a terribly important resource, how much time we've got. Uh, another terribly important resource is political capital. Because actually sometimes on these things, you actually you use up a hell of a lot of political capital. Um, and again, prestige tends to be another one that's linked into that. And I don't think we give enough thought to that, actually. I mean, if people had thought through what Afghanistan might have been like over a 10-year period, um, would we have done things differently? And I would say that a fair bit of political capital has been used up. And indeed, one prime ministerial career has probably been um, um, uh, quintessentially damaged for the Iraq campaign. Um, what course of action could we adopt? Now I'm getting to strategy, so course of action to me is strategy. So how are we going to do this? And this answers the how question. Uh, my next question is what course of action should we adopt? And the reason I have those two different questions is that I think it's worth through thinking three or four different ways to do these things before you actually make a decision. Uh, that's not my idea, it's General Slim's idea. Again, to me, of all the books that I've read uh, on strategy, the one that isn't about strategy but is the most fascinating nevertheless is Defeat into Victory by probably the, the person who, in my view, is probably the greatest general in the Second World War, Bill Slim. And the last thing, what should be the spirit of our approach strategically? Difficult question to get your mind around, but um, it comes from a conversation I had when we were doing policy planning. We were writing up our thinking uh, at the end of 9-11. We'd done a thing called the Strategic Defence Review New Chapter. Uh, I was the deputy director of the organisation. My director was a terrific civil servant. And uh, he said, you know, Steve, we need to get this um, policy implemented in a way in the spirit in which we wrote it. And so it's having that spirit and understanding the spirit of your approach. I, I can't justify that one evidentially. I can do the rest, actually, but I'm terribly sure it's important. So those are the frameworks that I'm going to use to actually look at our case studies. Um, and that's my... If I have one big point, it's just, it, these are the areas that we don't do the thinking properly. And yet the thinking can make a difference. Um, my brother's a Middle Eastern specialist, actually. Um, he understood extremely well as a result of his uh, study. He'd done two tours in Afghanistan, two in Iraq, and predicted to me almost um, to the month and in terms of how it played out, how the Syrian campaign would play out for the first six months. Not at all in the way that actually people anticipated, but he understood the tribal dynamics and the power dynamics uh, going on within Syria. But it's those, I think, where we need to really invest our thinking. Okay, um, let's come to my first case study, case study, Iraq 2005. I was in the um, Chief Defence Staff's um, organisation. I was his executive assistant, if you like, his principal staff officer. And my first um, 
um, job in taking over the um, post was to actually go out with um, with Mike Walker, as then was General Mike Walker, and Tony Blair, and we went out and uh, to Iraq and had a look at the campaign. I will remember, some of you may come across um, Jonathan, um, not Jonathan Bailey, um, anyway, wonderful army officer, a gunner, actually, and I remember very, very... Um, um, direct man, and I remember him almost literally poking Tony Blair in the uh, in the chest on three or four issues on Afghanistan. Very interesting to watch that. Mike Walker was completely um, nervous about this, actually. But the Prime Minister, I thought, quite likes it. But actually, what he was saying is that we didn't really have a strategy here, and he was the only person who actually did it. Um, but the question for me is the political objective. And what was the political objective for the British, um, the British nation in um, that campaign? Those are the ones we classically talk about. Um, if you ask me what I think happens, and this is pure speculation, I think what happens is in um, early April 2002, Tony walks out to the States. He has a conversation with George. George takes him and said, aside and says, look, we're going to do Iraq. Are you with us? Tony said, yes. He comes back to this country. He says, we're going to do Iraq. And the Foreign Office say, my God, Prime Minister, you realize that this is illegal? He said, well, we better find a Russian oil in that case. And I think that's what leads us to, um, to weapons of mass destruction. That's purely speculation. I can't justify it. But I think what it misses is actually the British objective was something different. I think that's what the British objective was. And I think actually we completely blew it. And we blew it because of what happened in Basra. I think the British objective, um, almost with that decision, was, can you read it out? I'm so sorry, you can't read it. Uh, let me read it out. Um, it was to act as a good ally to the US. And what would that mean? Uh, to me, that meant sticking it out in Basra, uh, Basra, the jewel of the crown, uh, and also to learn from our successes there. So what do we see happening? I think what we see happening is that we start to see a divergence in British and American strategies. So in late 2007, what do we see? We see the Americans surging into, to, um, or, or mid-2007, surging into Iraq um, based on um, a change, a clear change in strategy played out under Petraeus, and we see the British drawing down. Why are the British drawing down? Um, I can't tell you exactly, but I think a lot of it was to do with Jock Stirrup had taken a view, my, then the new chief of defence staff, was that the Iranians were going to try and kick us out of Basra. We were fighting a retreating contact, and we simply had to get on uh, and make that so. To me, though, it completely missed the point. You know, if, the, if we were in this, uh, to act as good allies to Americans, um, ought we not to have thought it through? And what do we see um, in early 2008? Um, we see the Americans starting to have some success. We also see um, the charge of the Knights, uh, and we actually see a change in Basra. But what happens much more subtly, it's not very well recognised at all, is that actually a new British general, a Royal Marines general, a personal friend of mine, Andy Salmon, arrives out in, in Basra, and he and Richard Iron, who some of you may also know, are colonel in charge of the training for the American, for the um, Iraq division out there, actually start to make a change and differences. And within about nine months, they have made such a difference that Petraeus is going round, Ordiano has now taken over from Petraeus, is going round and saying um, to the rest of his American divisional commanders, I want you to be operating like the British are in Basra, because it's the model campaign. So in nine months, from having had what was a pretty uh, disastrous period for the, for the British, we now have turned this campaign, and within nine months, actually, uh, it's seen by Audiano, the four-star American general, as a great success. And what do we do at that moment? We withdraw. Um, and we go instead to uh, Afghanistan. I want to talk about that decision in a bit, but let me take you to the next campaign, because this is a bigger, grand strategic issue. Let me take you to the next... Um, the next of my, my case studies. This is about political context. Do we, do we understand what the political context is? 
Um, some of you, I know here, and I think Rob may have seen these diagrams before, they're uh, about um, Afghanistan, they're diagrams which we were looking at. I remember looking at it specifically in the American headquarters, in um, American top secret headquarters. The Brits were the only ones, I think, with uh, access there, uh, and with limited access as well. But we were looking at diagrams which were not unlike this. Uh, on the, the right hand, on the left hand side there, you see this ethnic distribution. So this is the ethnic distribution of the Pashtuns. And what we were looking at was not this, but we were looking at a, a, a disposition of the security instruments. So the bombs, um, the IEDs, everything that had happened in Afghanistan. And what was fascinating was they pretty much actually followed the, uh, the Afghan uh, ethnic uh, disposition. So what that told us, it was, it was one of those moments where we thought, blimey, you know, this isn't an Afghanistan insurgency, it's a Pashtun insurgency. And I think it's a terribly important um, observation. What you're seeing here is another reflection of the same thing. This is the United Nations maps, uh, and it's all telling you where they're happy to operate and where they're not happy to operate. 2006, this is before the Brits go in. Um, you know, they're generally speaking happy to operate in the north but not in the south, and it's all to do with this being a Pashtun insurgency. Um, the way I sometimes, are there any Scots in the audience? The way I sometimes describe the Pashtuns is they're a bit like the Scots and that the Gilzai who are to the east are a bit like the Highlanders, and if they're not fighting each other, they're fighting everybody else and really well. Uh, the um, uh, Durrani, who are to the south and west, are a bit like the Lowlanders. Um, they're not always fighting. They're pretty good at it. They're not always fighting, actually, because they've got the, the, um, the enemy on the southern border, but actually they're quite good about making deals. And uh, generally speaking, the Gilzai to the east win the wars, and the Durrani to the south actually win the pieces. Um, what's um, Karzai? Karzai is a Durrani Pashtun. But again, what did we do to this? Now, there's a red thing here. So the, the red thing says we inserted 16 Air Assault Brigade. So the, the, um, the British uh, equivalent, if you like, to 82nd Airborne, uh, but essentially a, sh a, um, a body of shock troops um, designed and fantastic um, people if you're fighting a Falklands War. And they were great to have on our side in the Falklands, but are they necessarily the right place people to put into a delicate counterinsurgency. Um, the thing that we um, did, um, we did do some reconnaissance in Helmand beforehand, and that reconnaissance told us there were probably about 400 uh, Taliban. Um, we, the received wisdom is that that intelligence was wrong, and that actually we discovered that there were many more Taliban uh, in Helmand than we thought, um, uh, because actually there was a lot of fighting, which is a result of us going in. I think um, that actually there probably were only 400 Taliban each, and that we've very probably created the additional ones through the way in which we acted. I don't blame the, the, uh, the Air Assault Brigade, actually. I don't blame the Paris. I think we ought to have seen it, but we didn't. And that was simply a lack of understanding of the campaign context. Let me just um, quote to you. This is a good one. from. Um, this is about the Russian engagement. When, I, when you hear... Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about... Um, when you hear this, um, think instead of Russian, this is actually the Russian general staff talking about themselves going into Afghanistan. Imagine putting ourselves and seeing if we could use the same words. Um, Russian analysis of Afghanistan is another example. And here's a quote from the general staff. Unlike the communist guerrilla movements in China and Vietnam, the Mujahideen guerrillas were not trying to force a new ideology and government on their land. Rather, they were fighting to defend their families, their quorum and their religion against a hostile, atheistic ideology, an alien value system and oppressive central government and foreign invader. Individual groups unconnected to the national and international political organisations spontaneously defended their community values and their traditional way of life. 
Doesn't that sound familiar? Well, perhaps that's the subject for the questions. Um, my third case study, I think this is a more modern one. It's one that I'm not as um, um, au fait with. Um, but did we really understand the political context of the Libyan bombing campaign? Um, I think we've tended to think, a lot of AirPath, and I'm conscious I've got an Air Force officer, at least one in the audience, but I think a lot of AirPath enthusiasts would have ex expected this to be over quickly. Um, a lot of other AirPath enthusiasts didn't, because I've talked to them about it, actually. But I think one of the mistakes we may have made was to assume that these two campaigns were similar from an AirPath point of view, whereas in reality they were quite different. Um, what did we have in Afghanistan at the time of uh, 2003, um, when, we, when the um, air campaign supported by special forces is happening on the ground? What we had was a simmering civil war um, between the Northern Alliance and uh, the Taliban, and by no means a, a complete civil war. Um, so essentially, um, we've got two relatively evenly matched um, opponents, uh, one dormant but ready, uh, and the other in the south not uh, ready to take, um, not ready to, to talk to the West. Actually. And so, of course, when air power comes in there, and when air power is properly supported as it was then with special <coughs> forces, it makes a huge difference and quickly. I often think that actually one of the great mistakes we made in Iraq was to assume it would be like Afghanistan in this respect, actually. We assume that actually the idea of special forces on horses supported by overwhelming air power was the answer. And, of course, we showed in Iraq that, that wasn't the case. So I don't think we should have been surprised, and yet we were, about the extended duration of this campaign. I think we were surprised. Um, I think one of the most interesting things, actually, is to watch the British and the French get suddenly nervous when the Americans say that they'll do what they say they'll do, which is not to engage. And as we're getting a little bit worried about whether we're going to be successful or not, um, the Americans, again, leave us to it. And um, uh, there were moments when we wondered whether this campaign would play out as we wished, actually. Um, how, does, how will this campaign play out? I'm not sure, actually. I, I, think, I think we might be lucky, um, but I don't think there's been much strategy in it. And I speak from, ex, from the... Again, I'm not serving now, but I have talked to friends, actually, in NATO. And one of the key friends, actually, um, two-star general operating in the centre of NATO, I said, what's the strategy like? X. He said, well, we don't seem to have much of a clue, frankly. So I think, actually, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. I think the most interesting thing about how this plays out compared to Afghanistan is that we are now in a moment in the West, actually, where we have very little control whatsoever over the campaign. Um, there will be people from the Stabilisation Unit and DFID on the ground. They'll make not a jot of difference, I can assure you. The only thing that will make uh, a difference on the ground is having ground troops on the ground. Um, I don't think it would be right, so to do, but actually what you do have to recognise is that if you do this with air power, then actually at the end of the bombing campaign, at the end of the campaign, actually, then actually you lose whatever power you think you might have over the campaign. I happen to think that's a really good thing in the long term, but it would be terribly interesting to see if bits and pieces of it go wrong in the short term. Could you imagine, for example, um, those who were um, of the Gaddafi ilk? Now, what that regime looks like is an open question, but could you imagine them suddenly in situations where actually the rebels are actually starting to do things which we don't much like the look of, um, uh, reprisals and that sort of thing. Uh, what will we do in the circumstances where actually the ex-Gaddafis ask us for air support uh, to protect them um, and to protect the slaughter of their innocents on the ground? I think that put us in a very, very interesting question. Right, um, I want to go now ground strategic, because I think actually much of what's going wrong is actually not getting our thinking right at the ground strategic level. My first case study is this one. Um, 
In fact, I'm going to put another red arrow. I wonder if you can... Can you see that red arrow? You can see that arrow. Okay, that's a good thing. Why was it that we shifted our main efforts? And sorry, main efforts, a term for uh, that the military guys in the audience will recognise, which is shifting the main priority. Why did, why did British Armed Forces shift their main efforts uh, from Iraq to Afghanistan in 2005-2006? Um, well, I, can, I can't give you all the answers, but I can give you quite a lot of it, because I was... I was um, central to a paper which went to the Cabinet Office and which was taken at Cabinet to actually do this. And what I can tell you about that um, um, paper was that the logics within it were all on the, made all on the basis of military thinking uh, and with no supporting foreign policy analysis. How do I know that? Uh, I know it because when I, the paper was given to me, and there were only three people engaged in this paper, uh, there was no underlying logic for the shift. Um, well, I thought we'd better have, a, better have a logic if it was going to get... It seemed to me that the best logic from a military point of view was about, um, about the fact that we would get more leverage from military investment in Afghanistan opposed to Iraq, because we seem to have lost a lot of consent in Iraq, whether there was still a lot in um, Afghanistan. But what we did do, and what I did do, is put in a sentence which said, in the absence of any overriding foreign policy analysis, the military arguments, blah, blah, blah. Uh, now, that was actually a code to the Foreign Office to say, look, you guys might want to have a think about whether it's a good idea moving from a state which is um, critical to the Americans, uh, which um, is right in the north of the Gulf, which is one of our key strategic areas, and where we still may want to retain interest, into one which uh, seems less important, or certainly seemed less important to me, and was not fundamental to Britain's security. And I still don't think what we're doing in Afghanistan is fundamental to our security. So that foreign policy analysis was never done. And that just seems strange to me. Um, I think it's strange in part because I don't think actually we, we are really very good at uh, thinking at the grand strategic level. And again, for those of you who hadn't, I really do um, recommend this. I also recommend listening in to um, the next of these because they're doing this again in the autumn. So I think December we'll see another public administration select committee thinking about strategic thinking about whether we're very good at this. I think I've got some red in here, so I'll think all that red says is, did it make sense to make this decision without any supporting foreign policy analysis? And I think actually even the word supporting foreign policy analysis is wrong. I mean, surely we should have made a decision like that on the basis of foreign policy analysis, and it should have been driven by the foreign policy analysis. Um, I once did a lecture, I did it when I was at Royal College of Defence Studies, and I talked about strategy making at the end of it. A British diplomat came up to me, a knighted British diplomat, and said, you know, I'm awfully sorry, he said, I never realised to you guys in the military how important foreign policy was. That made me think. And there was then another British diplomat, again, another nice British diplomat, and I said to Richard, how do we make foreign policy? And he looked at me rather quaintly. He said, he said British foreign policy uh, is not made, but is rather the amalgamation and the coagulation of all the different decisions made by individual diplomats and people out in the, um, our embassies. And I thought, how interesting. And when you start to look in, I've written about strategy making. I'm one of the only people to have done it. Uh, if, you look at, if you look for books on, on diplomacy and foreign policy making, I can find hardly anything. There's even less than there is about strategy making. How much um, training do diplomats get um, in foreign policy and strategy? I can't detect any in the British model. And again, I think that's terribly interesting. So we've got untrained people making up stuff as they go along, muddling through. Here's my second case study, Libya and the Arab Spring. Um, what's the British national interest in Libya? 
um, in intervention. Uh, and what are the grand strategic benefits and costs? I think that's a very, very good question, not just because I wrote it myself, because I think it's the one that we should be thinking about. Uh, the national interest, I think what really matters is that if you understand the national interest and you understand what objective it is you're, you're trying to pursue, it gives you a much better understanding of how much price you're prepared to pay. And I don't think we do enough of this. Let me read to you from, General, uh, from Bernard Brody, who, for those of you who will know, is one of the most fantastic strategists, actually, an American professor. Um, this is about the American engagement in Vietnam. He says... The U.S. engagement in Vietnam should have been guided by a conception that ought to be utterly commonplace in strategic discourse and in related national policy decisions, but seems, on the contrary, to be often neglected or omitted. It is the conception of reasonable price on of it being applied to strategy and national policy. The idea that some ends or objectives are worth paying a good deal for and others are not. The latter include ends that are no doubt desirable but which are worth attempting only if the price can, with confidence, be kept relatively low. I would have said that that was the test which ought to have governed the way what we did in Libya. Um, I think there's a much more interesting issue about Libya, as though is, is, and actually I'm going to put my red here, you probably can't see it, but I'll talk about it. Um, where does Libya stand in terms of two other critical areas? Uh, we, what have we got happening at the moment? We've got um, the Arab Spring, and where's the Arab Spring playing out? It's playing out critically in the Middle East and Northern Africa, but critically in Suez and Egypt, uh, but also potentially in the Gulf. Now, what I can tell you is that with the intervention in Libya, one thing we probably did, because we were already heavily committed in um, Afghanistan, is that we used up our remaining a British military contingency to do anything else in the world. Does that make a uh, does that make a sense? Does that make sense at a time where um, things events are playing out in Egypt, which we don't really understand, and there are issues in the Gulf as well? Um, what would be the financial implications of things going wrong in Libya to the world system? I'm not sure they'd be that great. What would be the financial implications of a significant um, um, conflicts in the Gulf? I should have thought they'd be pretty catastrophic at the moment, actually. But I can tell you that at the moment we've got very little, very little capacity if we wanted to do anything about it. Fortunately, the Americans have, um, should they want to, because actually they made the, the decision about, I'm sure the decision about getting engaged or not in Libya was made on a basis of price and whether it was worth it. So I think that's a really interesting question. Um, so let me just come to conclude. I'm conscious I've got about five minutes. I, I promised myself about sort of 35 or 40 minutes. Um, um, I'm going to come to, to the so what in this. Um, I happen to believe in this. I don't think it's the only thing um, about what goes wrong, but I think actually so I think getting the strategic thinking right is probably a necessary but not sufficient condition for success. But equally, if you get it wrong, um, then actually it seems to me that you're going to be lucky if you actually, you're successful. Um, Let's look at that. Um, another great book on strategy um, was written by an American admiral, uh, John Wiley, uh, writing in 1966. It's a, very, um, a book that's not really well, well read enough, actually, but actually he talks about, about this. Um, and um, he, in, it's the phrase that I particularly like is those last two sentences. What I do decry is that strategy, and I would turn that into strategy making because there's an important distinction there, which is so clearly affects the course of society, such a disorganised, undisciplined intellectual activity. 
And I can guarantee you from my personal experience that that has not changed since 1966, and it still is. And I believe the state of affairs might be improved, and I think he's right. Um, where would I... Um, I'll now go on to my book. I'm shamelessly uh, put my book cover up there. Um, but actually, I suppose there's some honesty in this as well, because you know what? I do think this is important. I really do. The fact that we can't make strategy properly. What do I talk about? I talk about in the final chapter of my book, I talk about the lack of corpus of knowledge on strategy making. I would say uh, lightheartedly to my military friends, I said this is the best book written on strategy by a serving British officer for 70 years. And it is because it's the only one. Um, but actually that says something. You know, it says something that we're actually not even really thinking about this. And I can go to one or two standard texts, brilliant texts actually, about strategy. And you have to work through them. The one text I can think of, I can't remember what it's called, actually. I don't think you're uh, one of the authors, but certainly um, one or two great street thinkers are. Um, it's got not one page in it on strategy making and how to make strategy. Not one page. Standard text. Um, we don't even, I think, have an insight that this really matters. Um, it was very interesting at the um, House Commons, sorry, the Public Administration Select Committee um, that I was privileged to be, to be a witness to, as indeed was Hugh, um, that one of the, um, um, the deputy of the National Security Council of this country was asked about what training it had in strategy. Um, it would have been difficult for him to have had any because he was from the Treasury, uh, and the answer is he'd had none. You know, that's how I interpret, interpret his waffling answer, but he'd had none. And if you looked around the National Security Council of this country, I think you'd probably find that the only person who's had any training whatsoever in it, in the subject in which, which we um, give them these powers, is the single military man on it. Foreign policy, again, I think I've talked about this, um, the need for broader foreign policy in which you can actually set your, your strategic decisions, and I think this is a real shortfall. I think there's a problem in process. Uh, we don't have the right processes in this country, um, and we tend to assume that we can do it all uh, in, in London. If you ask me what the simple answer to actually making interventions abroad is, and I'm not in favour of it generally, but if you want to make them successfully, the simple answer to me is to actually get your best people and really make sure you've got your best people, send them out there, ask them what they think is best to do, and then uh, give them the resources that they need and then let them get on with it. That's broadly speaking how the British won in Malaya, was actually letting them out there get on with it and stopping the press and the House of Commons and other people trying to interfere with what they were doing from 6,000 miles. But ultimately, I think it's ultimately all about people. Uh, without the right people, we won't be able to do this. And I'm not sure that we're terribly good at selecting the right people. Let me give you two examples. Andy Salmon, who's the Major General, um, Royal Marines Major General uh, in charge, ambassador, uh, inspirational leader. And I don't say that because he's a personal friend, but he is an inspirational leader. Uh, is still um, at two-star level operating NATO. That doesn't make sense to me. Somebody who really was successful on the ground. Another Major General, Andrew Mackay, who was the one um, general who's really successful, British general in Afghanistan, again, was promoted at two-star level, pushed to the side, and um, left, the, uh, left the service. So people who were successful at strategic level, again, because they could think properly at the strategic level, have not found a place higher up. Why does it matter? Um, this is why it matters. Um, on the, the left-hand side, um, those are, I commanded the fleet army, and all these guys were killed. Um, they were killed in March 2003. We've done all the preparations to um, get them ready for operations. Uh, it had been a long, complex preparation, but we basically aimed off and said, look, we think you're going to be going on to operations uh, in uh, March 2005. And so we started the preparations in September uh, 2000, sorry, March 2003. We started the preparations in September 2002. Uh, they had a collision between two aircraft um, 
And so we, we then lost seven guys, actually. I went to six funerals in 11 days. And I can tell you that's not much fun. The only one I didn't go to was Paul Tom Adams, who's the American on the right-hand side. His was out in California. Um, in those days, before I'd started this journey, um, I think I would have been able to look the parents of those uh, young men in the face and say, yeah, we're doing the right thing. I'd find it much more difficult now, much more difficult, because I don't think we're doing the strategic thing properly. Um, those kids, they're all orphans uh, in Afghanistan. Not all orphans as a result of um, wars, but orphans nevertheless. And I do wonder sometimes about the way that we muck around in people's countries. Let me sort of finish with a quote. I'm going to quote myself this time, um, if I can find it. Yeah, so I'm not saying that strategy is the answer. I'm not saying strategy making is necessarily right. But let me just see if I can um, fire you up with this last quote. I'm talking about now about um, strategy making in coalitions. Um, in the complexity of the coalition situation, superior strategy becomes even more important as a guide for the strategic action. Some may conclude that because of the complexity and the coalition pressures, it is just too difficult and instead that muddling through is the answer. Perhaps. But without, without a shared strategy, muddling through will be multiplied across the different nations and then multiplied again across their foreign affairs, defence and development departments. Without an agreed strategy, national contingents will inevitably and necessarily refer back to the national capitals for direction that, when given, will be based on distant and incomplete appreciations of the position on the ground and will often be shaped by other factors based on domestic politics. This will be muddling through to the power 10 and we will have to pin our chances on the hope that the herd of internal and internal, uh, internal and international coalition actors heads blindly but broadly in the right strategic direction. Effective strategy making seems the better way, and even if it is mind-numbingly difficult and we do not always get it right, surely we should try. Surely we owe it to our agents of strategy, military and civil, who stoically risk their lives on the call of duty. Surely we owe it to the host populations of the territories where our coalitions act and whose destinies are so often caught up in the success or otherwise of our actions. Surely these actions are better guided by the rational strategy rather than the blind and random progress of the herd. This is not to suggest that we will always be successful in coalition strategy making, but even if our attempts at strategy making coalition do not in practice improve our prospects of success, it would be beyond conscience surely not to try. <laughs>